episode of Progress, Potential, and Possibilities, discussions with fascinating people designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome, everybody, again to another episode of our show, bringing you another really fascinating guest today uh, involved in, uh, in creating a better tomorrow on many different fronts. And uh, our guest today is, is not just a really cool scientist who's capable of conversing with uh, Nobel laureates as well as the lay public, but he's also an accomplished author and a prolific podcaster on a range of subjects. Uh, today, we have the honor of being joined by Dr. Brian Keating, uh, Chancellor's Distinguished Professor of Physics at the Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences uh, in the Department of Physics, University of California, San Diego. Uh, Dr. Keating is a public speaker, an inventor, and an expert uh, in the study of the universe's oldest light, uh, the cosmic microwave background radiation, uh, using it not just to learn about uh, the origins uh, and evolution of the universe, but ultimately to potentially gain insight into uh, an even bigger picture behind the scenes that is the, uh, the multiverse. Uh, as mentioned, Dr. Keating is a writer, a podcaster of the Awesome Into the Impossible podcast, uh, and the best-selling author of one of Amazon editors' best nonfiction books of all time, losing the Nobel Prize. And his new book, Into the Impossible, Think Like a Nobel Prize winner, will be out in a couple weeks. Um, Dr. Keating has his bachelor's in physics from Case Western Reserve, his MS and PhD uh, in physics from Brown, his postdoc at Stanford, and his uh, National Science Fellow postdoc uh, from Caltech. Uh, Dr. Brian Keating, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Thank you, Ira. And uh, just news coming in right now. My mother-in-law would like to present the rebuttal uh, to your introduction. <laughs> it was too kind. That's what happens when your mother writes it, not your there mother-in-law. You there you go. <laughs> Well, it's great to have you here, Brian. Today, I, um, you know, I'd love to start things off. If you can, um, you know, from sort of the, the time you you were conceived up until the time you arrived at uh, Case Western, uh, when did you fall in love with physics? Yeah, for my own personal Big Bang, yeah. uh, <laughs> my parents' Big Bang, rather. Uh, yeah, I've been in love with physics and astronomy since I was a little kid, since I uh, would notice things like the moon following me wherever I went at night in the car as a you know, young child, uh, wondering why that was, all the way up until when I first looked through a telescope at the moon at age 12, and re repeated unknowingly and without actual intention, Galileo's discovery of the moon's craters and mountains, et cetera, et cetera. And then later discovered the planet Jupiter through the same telescope, the rings of Saturn, the phases of Venus, uh, distant galaxies where light had traveled for 3 million years to reach me. This is in the mid eighties. So this is long before uh, uh, Google existed. I couldn't look up on Wikipedia what I was seeing over the skies of, of Dobbs Ferry, New York. Uh, and uh, and it uh, compelled me because of that lack of easy tools to research. I had to go to the library or wait for the New York Times to come out. And the Sunday edition would have a section about the cosmos. Uh, I don't even think they have that anymore. They have horoscopes in some in most newspapers. But they don't have like what's happening in the heavens. Um, so and that was before Amazon and other things. So you couldn't buy books easily. Uh, so but it forced me to do hard work to learn the learn the basics of astronomy. I just became fascinated in it. But I, I never thought it would lead to a career. I was like, are they going to pay me to be an astronomer? I mean, would they would they also pay me to be an ice cream taster? 
you know, or a wizard or, you know, <laughs> a magician, uh, you know, get, get the lucrative career from that. No. So I didn't think of it as a possible career for many, many years to come after that, but I was always in love with it. And I did it for the purest, you know, amateur means, you know, love of, and that's what I was doing it for. Uh, and lo and behold, here I am a professional astronomer many, many decades later. <laughs> Outstanding. Outstanding. You know, I, I'd like to start off um, talking about a couple of topics that have been core to your your research over the years that you talk about it in losing the Nobel Prize. And, and the first of those, obviously, uh, just the concept of the multiverse. And, and you know, interesting, in your book, uh, you propose a, a very elegant model you borrow from, from sort of my world of the life sciences, where you, you talk about a petroverse, uh, where you posit this uh, plate of nutrient-rich agar sort of representing this uh, infinite uh, potential of the, the multiverse, the cosmos. Uh, you plate little big, big bangs of bacteria, which grow, expand exponentially, uh, forming little bacterial universes. Uh, yet these little universes, they'll never meet each other uh, due to various things that we understand about the way bacteria communicate, quorum sensing and electrotaxis and all sorts of other neat sounding things. Um, when you're sitting around thinking and brainstorming about the multiverse nowadays, is this the model that appeals to you the most or are, are you into other models as well of thinking about the multiverse? Yeah. So I should say, you know, in case people aren't familiar, the multiverse is really an extension of what's called the Copernican principle that just as the earth is not the only planet in our solar system, uh, the sun is not the only star in our galaxy. The Milky Way is not the only galaxy in our observable universe. Our observable universe might not be the only universe in the so-called multiverse. And so it's kind of an extent. When we were kids, everything that existed was called the universe. And now they're added, we've added to it as physicists collectively the potential for an infinite number of worlds, not just a large number, not nine planets, ten, eight planets, whatever, but an infinite number of worlds. And in such an, uh, a universe, the effects that occur downstream are manifold, including impacts on theology and philosophy uh, and all sorts of, of properties of logic, even probability statistics. So the stakes could not be higher, in my opinion, and that's why I found it fascinating. Do I believe in the multiverse? Uh, this is not something that I think is, is really consistent with my goals as a scientist, which is to study things for which we have evidence. So in order to have evidence, we have to have a mental model. Uh, at least to try to deduce things from the implications of a theory if taken seriously. If you uh, take the theory of the multiverse seriously, you then have to extrapolate mental models. So one of the mental models I've already mentioned, you know, just as we have many planets means that we have uh, many stars, at least the possibility is not forbidden. There might be many universes. Um, so that's one level of analogy. Um, but it's not really that... Um, that evocative as I think my Petriverse was in that uh, what we're trying to suppose in cosmology is that the existence of our universe tells you that the conditions are right um, uh, for the laws of physics to provide uh, allowable life forms like us to evolve, sort of a version of the weak anthropic principle, what's called the weak anthropic principle. But to go deeper, you could say our existence means just the same as it would be to a sentient bacterium, um, you know, it, uh, and I'm not going to say he or she, but I'll say it, you know, could posit that because I exist, there is potential for other cultures to exist. Mm -hmm. And, and therefore um, the, the question that next would come to the forefront of that 
I don't know, mind of the bacterium is how could you observe evidence for this? So we have evidence for planets other than the earth. We have evidence for stars. We have evidence for galaxies. We have no evidence for other universes, but how could you get evidence? Well, if the evidence is not forbidden, it's said in physics, it's mandatory. In other words, if a process in quantum mechanics is not forbidden, it occurs again and again in some uh, parts of laboratories or the universe itself. Um, so my uh, my you know kind of gestalt there thinking way of thinking was well what kind of mechanisms would prevent us from seeing the multiverse what kind of an analogies could be drawn between the non-observation of other universes and one that came to mind in the petri dish example are these toxic cultures which um my colleague herbie levine my former colleague here at ucsd and his colleague in in tel aviv uh, worked on, you know, kind of this this like chemical warfare that that you're probably much more knowledgeable about between these cultures. That that could be something that prevents a bacterium from learning about another culture, even though they exist. So he would be left, or it would be left, just by saying, "Well, the agar exists, therefore the potential, the laws of of our existence are not forbidden. There's potential, but we may never observe it." And so that was the help of that analogy that I use in that book. And it's, it's a great analogy. And uh, um, the, you know, the other part of the, of your research that I wanted to focus on, you know, you've been um, quite focused on a period of time, um, sort of uh, some time equal zero at, at the point of the Big Bang or 10 to the negative 34 seconds or so after the Big Bang, when this amazing event called inflation happened uh, to about 380,000 years after the Big Bang, uh, where the cosmic background radiation is, is first produced. And in that time frame, uh, uh, after inflation, all sorts of interesting, cool things happened with cool names like baryogenesis and nucleosynthesis to get to a point where there was something that generated cosmic background radiation that you could see. However, um, your program was looking for things that were very difficult to see, uh, namely uh, these interesting space-time ripples known as BMOV gravitational waves uh, that, as you know, I read about them sort of sound like uh, sort of the opposite of gravity, you know, so a gravity that propels as opposed to attracts things. Um, say a couple words about inflation and specifically sort of this B-mode uh, gravitational waves that you were hunting down within the CMB. Yeah. So the dominating paradigm, you know, equivalent in the life sciences for, you know, uh, evolution via natural selection, micro, macro, uh, the dominant paradigm for cosmic structure to evolve mm -hmm. um, and to, and to adapt. <laughs> Literally, it is evolving under the forces of gravity, not natural selection. There are some that say natural selection does take place in a Darwinian sense in the cosmos. The fecundity of the universe, uh, et cetera. I don't get into that, but uh, but in this particular um, case, for what I study in cosmology, the story of the uh, uh, evolution and, and origin of the universe, uh, we are missing a great deal of of kind of the tools that a biologist might have. In that, we do not understand the initial conditions of our system, and it may be in principle impossible to unravel what those initial conditions were. Uh, on the other hand, in contradistinction, we understand exquisitely accurate the evolution, the dynamics, the composition, and the behavior of the universe since the origin of the universe. We just don't understand that that initial you know moment. Now you might say, well, you guys understand everything from you know 13.8 billion years after the formation of the elements, typically called the Big Bang, 
Um, you understand how things, how the elements formed. You can even say you've replicated some of the physical conditions of the early universe in laboratories on Earth, like the Large Hadron Collider reaching temperatures of, you know, a trillion Kelvin equivalent. But um, but there's a big range, Ira, between 10 to the 12th Kelvin and infinity Kelvin. <laughs> it's not just like, oh, well, it's a big number. Or equivalently, when we talk about understanding time in the reverse sense, we understand all the way back to a few minutes after the Big Bang, maybe even a few seconds after the Big Bang. But there's a huge gap between uh, that time and zero time on a logarithmic scale. There's infinite amount of, 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 of intervals. And we want to understand time equals zero. And it's not clear if we can in the uh, context of, of ordinary scientific pursuit, understand the origin of time within a framework of science that relies on the changes of that very quantity, i.e. time. How do you study time if you posit that time itself began? And so inflation is best thought about as a mechanism that comes concomitant with the multiverse because there's no other way to instantiate sure. this quantum field called the inflaton, which then sparks the rapid escalation of the size of the universe and the formation of elements and the eventual seeds of ripples of structure that form in the universe. Um, but there's no necessarily predicate, you know, pre preceding um, uh, adopted understanding of the universe. Uh, either it came from nothing or it might've come as I've studied on my YouTube channel in several episodes, it may have come from a preceding universe that kind of collapsed mm -hmm. and uh, from which our universe arose like a phoenix. So I think it's fascinating to note that we don't have, a, you know, we kind of have this exquisite skyscraper, but it's built on a shaky, sandy foundation, maybe like at the beach. And, uh, and that's unfortunate, but it doesn't stop us from A, conjecturing and B, trying to learn as much as we can about the superstructure, even if we can never really firmly root it into bedrock below. So, Brian, you, you create the Cosmic Microwave Background B-Mode Observing Campaign. It's called BICEP, Background Imaging of Cosmic Extragalactic Polarization. Uh, you hang out down at the South Pole for a while. There's the Successor Project. Um, and, and things, you know, there's some peaks and valleys here. This, this part of the story is in the book. You, you talk a lot about it on the internet, lecture about it. I'm not going to go into sort of the accident uh, and the dust that got in the way. People can read about that story, but I would like to talk about sort of as an outsider to the world of physics, I hang out in the pharmaceutical industry and in the life science domain. Um, what happened in this program, I don't see as an outsider as sort of unforgivable. Um, you didn't spend a hundred billion dollars and put a space station up there and you forgot about the oxygen or something. You, you know, um, I come from an industry where people waste billions of dollars all, every year and they get more money afterwards and, and, you know, right. and they get promoted for it. Um, it's the world of cosmology about thinking about the multiverse at this level, the experimentalists, as you, you, you call yourself. Is it really that, that unforgiving for things like this? Talk about I that think, a bit. I think it's not, um, but I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. Um, we've had many, many examples of discoveries that weren't, and because of the kind of outsized impact that cosmology and physics in general 
have on the uh, on our understanding of the universe, I think it's and uh, our place within it, and that naturally people want to talk about, as you asked me about my origin story, people are fascinated with origin stories. You know, how is it possible to, um, to, to look back in, in time and not, or look out in space and not wonder where did it all come from? Uh, as well as every religion and, you know, that I know of having something to say about the origin of the universe, in particular Judeo-Christian religions, um, you know, starting with the origin of the universe, perhaps in the, in the let there be light uh, famous saying. So, I think it's endemic in human curiosity to be fascinated by where did we come from? You know, I always ask people, what's your favorite day on the calendar? Usually people say it's my birthday, my anniversary, my kid's birthday. Those are all origin moments. And so there's something deeply ingrained that humans want to know about because it's the only thing that, you know, in some sense, we can't really witness uh, besides our own death, maybe in some cases. So those endpoints, you know, which is origin of a different phase of life, right? So I think it's it's natural that humans will be fascinated by our uh, origin, but that comes with a concomitant sense of responsibility that when we discover something about the physical universe, we should not hype it. We should not turn it into a spectacle. We should not overplay, you know, what we've discovered in order to drum up support, financial, intellectual authority, um, et cetera. And we should be very skeptical of our own confirmation biases. Mm -hmm. So um, these are played into in large part by the Nobel prize. On the other hand, the general public likes it and the media like it. So for example, for us, we announced that we did discover the inflationary universe, the signature of inflation, the imprimatur of inflation by these uh, particular type of signature of the oldest light in the universe called the cosmic microwave background radiation. And we claim we, uh, we discovered where it came from. And then that, as I said earlier, comes hand in hand with the multiverse. So you have inflation, you have the multiverse. So we really said we discovered gravitational waves, which had yet to be discovered at that point uh, directly. Uh, and we discovered the evidence for inflation and we discovered evidence for the multiverse. So these are huge things. This obviously appeared on the front page of the New York Times, the San Diego Union Tribune, the best newspaper in the world, uh, and uh, CNN everywhere. Three million people watched a viral video from Stanford University, uh, highly produced about it. And, uh, and yet nobody, even many people, nobody in the lay public, and many people in physics still think that result still stands. I still meet people, oh, you, you invented bicep? Like, you guys discovered the origin of the universe, right? And so my, my problem is that not that the discoveries appear on page one, but that the retractions appear on page 17 in the weekend edition that nobody reads. Moving uh, into the new book, Into the Impossible, Think Like a Nobel Prize winner. Uh, you spent time interviewing uh, nine Nobel Prize winners in physics. Um, and we'll get into a couple of these cases, but about a third of the way through this book, uh, you write a, a mini chapter called Interstitial, where you focus uh, on introducing the reader to the importance of the scientific method. Um, talk first about why you wrote uh, this mini chapter. So I wanted to kind of demystify the scientific method as something that is remote, specialized, practiced by special individuals using special tools, and really say that, no, you can basically do this no matter what you do. It's, a, it's just a way of systematic thinking. It's not like Galileo, who's widely recognized as the you know, first practitioner of it in the modern sense, uh, you know, said, I'm going to apply the scientific method because there was no scientific method. Uh, but the, the process of simultaneous checks and balances, 
of auto defe of auto falsification, uh, which we did do quite well, even after we, you know, mistakenly interpreted the uh, origin source of our signal, we were yet very scientifically uh, acted with great scientific integrity in basically retracting by scientific standards what we had discovered or claimed to discover. So, um, so this is very important. I think that humans you know, who are not scientists and, you know, contrary to, to the myth, you know, scientists are all humans <laughs> for now. Uh, but the point being that I wanted people to see that there's no one agreed upon method. So you hear people like, we're the party of science. We follow the science. What does it mean? Uh, because not even scientists have one unique way of getting at it. And I've never started off as I did in ninth grade biology, you know, well, here's the hypothesis, here are the materials, here's, the, you know, that just doesn't happen. And so we are left with this mis, uh, misapprehension in the general public that it's uniform, there's some perfect unfailing code. And if you just follow it, out comes knowledge. And that couldn't be further from the truth, as you know. And so I wanted to illuminate for, mm -hmm. for people what it's like to, you know, to have not only the, the outcome of science, but the very method of science right. itself. Because uh, I think people use things like the, you know, peer review and all these things. They're all modern inventions, even journals. Right. Peer-reviewed, you know, journal. Uh, no, that's that's not that's been in existence for about fifty years, um, you know, in its current form. So I, I think it's I think it's overblown, and we do ourselves a disservice as scientists to promulgate the myth that it is done by these unerring, you know, perfectly artificially intelligent, supernatural, preternatural geniuses that never make mistakes. Gotcha. Gotcha. And if I can quote um, uh, a, a small passage at the end of that section, um, in science, you must not only trust your critics, but accept the fact that you need them. Their participation as adversaries strengthens you and your work, making you anti-fragile. And this was a fascinating line because one of my favorite books, aside from yours, of course, uh, mm -hmm. is, is the book Anti-Fragile by yeah. uh, Nassim Taleb. And he has this fascinating section, you probably read it, uh, uh, something to the effect of, you know, scientists who teach birds how to fly. Um, where he basically talks about as important as all the science is and the scientific method, we forget about all the stuff that has gotten here via uh, tinkering. Uh, we forget about the Wright Brothers uh, bike shop and the fact that Edison, you know, he had horrible learning issues, um, was a telegraph operator for a long time. Um, and of course, you know, this is leading me into, you know, one of the cases in the new book, uh, that of uh, Rainer Weiss, uh, which you call the tinkerer in this chapter. And uh, one more quote here, uh, make time to tinker and be playful. In doing so, you learn how to problem solve, just as important, you learn how to fail and how to learn from failure. Um, Talk a little bit about some of the learnings from uh, Dr. Weiss and a little bit about sort of this issue of tinkering and why it's so important in sort of the scientist's uh, armament area. I think, you know, as it's often said, you know, scientists are very childlike. You know, we have wonder, we have imagination, we have curiosity, we have passion, um, you know, we're tenacious. Uh, and I always joke, you know, yeah, we're very much like children. It's true. We're jealous. We're petty. We don't share our toys with other people. We, you know, so I, I give a lot of grief to my fellow scientists, but I wanted to highlight, you know, that sometimes you have to get back to your roots and, and explore why did you get interested in science to begin with? And I needed that lesson as much as my readers and listeners. And so for me to get reconnected to this 80 plus year old, you know, man is still playful and he still lives by one rubric which is if it's not fun, get out of it. Uh, and, you know, that to me, and if you're not learning something new, you got to change the field that you're in because you're going to stagnate. And there's only so much time. You know, I was inspired to write the book by Freeman Dyson's death. Mm -hmm. You know, I had some of these interviews. I didn't have others. 
And I was like, well, he was 89 years old, 90 years old. And, and he was a great individual, lost the Nobel prize unfairly, in my opinion, many people's opinion uh, in the sixties. Uh, and yet it was never bitter about it. But the fact that most of these laureates are 80, 70 years old meant that, you know, just unavoidably, unless we cure, you know, you guys cure, you know, death. Uh, I think we're going to, you know, unfortunately lose the, uh, the opportunity to engage with these otherworldly, you know, intellects, or, or at least people that have an otherworldly impact on society. So from my perspective, I want to engage and show the human side of people like Ray. I mean, Ray, I had to cut out a lot of his transcripts. He's so foul mouthed and he just doesn't <laughs> care. And, and, you know, I remember, you know, going there to give a colloquium at MIT and, his, and just like, just speaking in that, you know, New York accent that I love and, uh, and, and just, you know, it wasn't fit for, for, uh, all audiences, shall we say. So I wanted to, uh, I wanted to kind of inculcate back for myself selfishly, but also for my readers and listeners, how is it to renew your, your passion at regular intervals and kind of question that? Why did I become a scientist? Because many of these people are so talented, they could do many other professions, not to be glib, but they could do other things that are more lucrative than being, as I am, a public university employee. Um, and yet I keep doing it and I would do it for free. Don't tell Gavin Newsom, recently reelected governor, my boss in California. So uh, please don't, uh, don't share that, but I would do it for free and many scientists would. So always try to connect and resonate with that. And I feel like tinkering best sums up that approach. Stand. Um, another example that, you know, I, I'd like to say a few words about, um, in, in, in my industry, uh, a thought leader, uh, if they're specialized in the breast cancer or, or autoimmune diseases, they're really specialized in that thing. And, and most of us that think about the Nobel Prize and the Nobel Prize winners think that they're probably really, really good at one thing. But obviously, Sir Roger Penrose, as you say, uh, most people's work is either deep or broad, but his is both. And here is somebody, you know, got the Nobel quite late in life, work on black holes, but he's equally comfortable in talking about uh, quantum biology and consciousness and a range of other things. Uh, say a few words about Sir Roger, if you would, because I know he's- Yeah, Sir Roger is an amazing individual. I just spoke at his 90th birthday party in August, a virtual birthday party. And, um, you know, he is as energetic as ever. I mean, he would have come to the States uh, to have it in person. I think he, he, doesn't, he doesn't really slow down at all. And so that intellectually and physically, I'm in awe of him and want to emulate him. On the other hand, you know, he's also very bold and provocative. And I think the larger question is what makes physicists the people to emulate? You know, is that just my own bias because I'm a physicist? Uh, you know, as you say, biologists are, are, are brilliant scientists as well. But I think scientists, physicists in particular have to are kind of generalist in that we we typically sometimes to our detriment kind of arrogance you know, it's, oh, it's biology, you know, the famous, oh, like a physicist gets into biology, their first, you know, thing is to approximate a cow as a spherical, spherical body. And, uh, you know, that's their, that's their zoological or biological physics, you know, lesson number one. But I think there is a, you know, kind of nugget of wisdom embedded there, which is that um, physicists are very general in that we have, we're not the best mathematicians, we're not the best engineers in, in experimental physics, we're not the best computer programmers or data analysts compared to data scientists or something like that. Um, but we, we start these fields, we engage in these fields, we study the, the origin of these fields and no field in the, in the tree of science is often depicted as having its roots in math or philosophy. And then the first trunk that comes out is physics. And people like Nobel laureate Dirac would say arrogant things like my equation describes much of physics. 
um, all of chemistry and, and probably biology too. Uh, I don't think cosmologists can really say that cosmology touches on every aspect of physics, you know, thermodynamics, uh, quantum mechanics, particle physics, general relativity, special relativity, except biophysics. So, uh, I mean, people study aliens. I'm, I'm on the advisory board for the Galileo project with Avi Loeb at Harvard. And, mm -hmm. you know, we're looking maybe for, for alien uh, signatures. But besides that, we're not really studying the laws of biology. But aside from that, we have to be communicators, popularizers, uh, translators and engineers, mathematicians, scientists. So there's no uh, real doubt in my mind where people like Feynman and Einstein um, and to you know lesser extent, people like Fermi and others had these widely discursive intellects and are kind of the image of, of a scientist. Like if you ask a normal person, you know, who's a good scientist or who's a scientist, they would say Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's an astrophysicist, mm. or you know, Einstein, who is a you know a physicist, you know, it's extraordinaire. So I think these are reasons why physicists are worthy of emulation, and Roger is a particularly apt instantiation of such uh, of such a character. Outstanding. So, Brian, we've uh, we've talked a little bit about losing the Nobel Prize. We talked about some of the cases in Into the Impossible, thinking like a Nobel Prize winner. Um, I'd like to segue now towards um, your Into the Impossible uh, podcast, which is really one of my favorite shows to listen to. I encourage everyone listening and watching this episode to subscribe to it. Um, and sort of. I'm going to take on the position of sort of I was your co-host on the show uh, and, and ask a couple of questions about some of the themes that you've gone into that I would like to hear a little bit more about when you interview some of these uh, these thought leaders. Um, and the first place I'd like to start is uh, with, with the theories of everything. Mm. Uh, you've had various guests on the show that, that talk about their theories of everything uh, or unified field theories, which are slightly different. Um, but... Um, I, I'm somebody, I, I need a, an epilogue in my life, right? I, I was sad for weeks after Game of Thrones and, and The Sopranos ended. <laughs> um, you know, right, tomorrow, if we find out that um, Garrett Lisi is right, or Eric Weinstein, or Michio Kaku, or Brian Keating, if you have your own theory of everything that we don't know about yet, uh, September 16, 2021, talk about what happens on September 17th. Um, equals MC squared, got us a lot of stuff in the ensuing decades. Where do we go with the unified field theories and the theories of everything? Yeah, I think it's very interesting because we have uh, this fascination with them. And I think in part, the reason is because it's kind of Einstein's unfinished symphony, symphony or Einstein's last final theorem. Uh, these things that captivate in their finality the kind of um, memento mori, the, 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 the realization that life is finite uh, and that you want to accomplish maybe what Einstein couldn't do and, and uh, or, you know, Fermat couldn't do. So for these reasons, things like theories of everything, which, which, you know, hypothesize that there is a fundamental unified description of nature um, that is both elegant, beautiful, simple, and in, in a physics sense, not mathematically, but, but um, elementary, et cetera, that these exist. And I think, you know, um, I claim there's no real necessity to mandate that they exist. In other words, it may be a reflection of our bias towards things like beauty and, uh, and, and symmetry, parsimony that have been good guides, but may no longer be. Uh, and that the mission of physics to some people is to uncover that, 
And in so doing, we'll have, as Michio Kaku has been a guest, says, you know, this one-inch equation that does what Einstein couldn't do, wins a Nobel Prize, and is the God equation. And I think, you know, I think your kind of prediction or maybe timeline is, uh, you know, needs a couple of zeros on it because we are quite far away from it. And I think the reason is, is because what we have now is so successful uh, and that there's really this, now we're in this desert where we can't really predict what new inputs we can discover that will help us define the boundary conditions. As I said earlier, the problem with inflation is we don't have the initial conditions. Mm -hmm. um, in, in a Petri dish, there's a boundary and an initial condition. You know, you know when you started it, you know the chemotaxis, you know sure. this, you know, blah, 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 you know the reagent. But in, a, um, in the universe, you don't have the initial conditions. Um, and, in, and in, you know, the particle physics realm of the theories of everything, we don't really have the boundary condition. We don't understand what are the inputs because we don't have new and powerful enough experimental tests to access the ranges of energy, et cetera, that we need to go deeper than we already are at. In other words, all the low-hanging fruit is gone. It's been gone for 50 years, some say. The Higgs was like the last major thing and to be added to it. And many, most people assume that it was there uh, for it to not be there would have been, you know, truly revolutionary. So, um, and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. My sub project on Into the Impossible and Dr. Brian Keating on YouTube is really what I call the assayer project, which is what, you know, Galileo's second or third book was called, uh, Il Sagittori, which meant the assayer, the one who takes a piece of rock and rubs a piece of gold on it, or what's thought to be gold, what's hypothesized to be gold. And depending on what kind of uh, mark is left, he or she can determine if the gold is, is uh, yay and verily true uh, to the claim. And if it's not, you know, God forbid, the guy's probably going to lose his head. But, uh, <laughs> but this is a val very valuable analogy because you're taking something that is not valuable in itself. It's not like a work of theoretical, you know, beauty, th these experiments that we're working on, but yet it has the ability to assay and test the, the true precious nature or lack thereof of these theories. And I think what's missing now, and the reason I'm not sanguine it's going to happen, you know, on the 17th, uh, is that we are so successful as experiments, as experimentalists, that we've mined a lot of the data on earth. And so for that reason, we really have to go out into the universe and use the entire cosmos as our laboratory. And that's what my colleagues and I are doing on the Simons Observatory and other projects. So I think it'll be quite some time before we can really even constrain further than we already know now, uh, what are the boundary conditions on a purported theory of everything? Got it. And connecting to that, um, you know, I, I've heard a theme on your show from some of your guests sort of lamenting the current state of, of funding of um, basic physics and uh, the, the segment. Um, you know, if, if I was to come up here uh, with a, whatever, some, a trillion dollars for you, uh, and I'm yeah. going to invest it in the Keating Institute of Advanced uh, Physics Thoughts, uh, whatever, talk, talk a little bit about what you're, you're going to invest in uh, looking out. Yeah, so it would be clear for me, the most interesting thing to do would be to do uh, a truly uh, impossibly deep, but 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 I mean theoretically possible with that much money, we could make a uh, an observatory that could actually go back to the origin of time itself and and reveal whether or not general relativity 
is the core theory of the evolution of the universe. So in order to have a theory of everything, you, you have to subsume, and as I said, do what Einstein could not do, which is to create this unified theory of, of light and matter and gravity and space-time. And he wasn't able to do that with all particles in nature. Um, and even he died before any of them were really unified, except for electricity with magnetism. So um, on the other hand, what we could do with a large enough cosmic microwave background experiment is to uh, is to build a, an, a network of telescopes, which would have the capacity to reach what is called the floor of gravitational perturbations. And uh, is that doing so would either reveal one of two things, that inflation took place, in which case we'd understand the spark that ignited at least the hot Big Bang that we observed the aftermath, the shrapnel thereof, um, or we would reveal that inflation didn't take place and perhaps another form of, of origin story took place, a cyclical model, a bouncing cosmology. Um, and or thirdly, we've revealed that, that general relativity is wrong at some level. We might see cracks start to appear in general relativity, which, by the way, is so successful that it's in every one of our phones. General relativistic corrections yep. uh, adapt to changing gravitational fields so that your GPS and your phone works accurately. Without general relativity, you do not get to where you're going uh, accurately. So, um, and despite having general relativity, I often get lost. So that's a little bit uh, frustrating. Um, but, uh, but you know, for these purposes, I think it's it would be that would be most direct. Now, I'm obviously biased by being a cosmologist, but nevertheless, I still think it would be uh, the most fascinating thing that's eminently doable with enough resources. Another uh, very fascinating thing that guests have proposed is building solar system-sized particle accelerators. And these wouldn't even cost your trillion dollars from the Pastora Fund. Uh, this would cost much less. So um, so for those reasons, those, these are the types of experiments that I'd be most keen to build. And I think they'd have huge payoffs in order to um, really reveal if we're barking up the right tree or not. Um, right. We've had uh, a little overlap uh, between our shows. Um, Avi Loeb has, has stopped by here, uh, Jill Tarter uh, from SETI. Um, and, you know, their work uh, is, you know, you're, you're acutely aware, um, ultimately posits the existence of advanced extraterrestrial life forms that either can communicate with us in very unique ways or traverse the cosmos. Um, over the years, I've had the opportunity to talk to some other folks, uh, people like uh, Penny Boston, who used to run NASA's astrobiology group, um, uh, Cheng Gang Zhao down at DARPA, who, aside from working on artificial intelligence, likes to think about octopus brains and how what it's like having nine little brains as opposed to one. And then, of course, uh, Mike Levin up at Tufts, who's recently created the Xenobots, these brainless little frog robots that are going to be doing all sorts of interesting things for us, potentially out in the cosmos. Um, as, as you think, sit around and, and brainstorm um, about, you know, what potentially is out there uh, you know, in, in biologic form, um, what are some of the things you think about? Yeah, I, I often think about these as huge questions, you know, other life forms, other intelligent life forms, do they exist? Uh, as I mentioned, I am, you know, involved with Avi um, on his a fascinating Galileo project as an external advisor, not, not an actual scientific contributor. But I think, uh, I think that's, you know, are we alone in the cosmos? The fascinating questions to me are always these chicken or egg questions. How did the universe come from a non-universe, if indeed that happened? How did, um, you know, how did matter, inanimate matter, 
become living um, uh, matter? How did, you know, inorganic matter turn into organic matter? How did um, the organic matter become conscious, creative, intelligent, technological? These are all huge missing lacunae in our understanding of physical processes, which are in principle uh, understandable. Uh, I also like to think about kind of like the, the next day. You asked me, like, what happens the next day sure. after a theory of everything? Um, I'm quite convinced that if we discovered, you know, life on Venus's clouds, as Sarah Seeger and her colleagues and others have, have spoken about on my show and others, um, that almost nothing would change. Uh, even if we discovered advanced civilization, and I use, you know, the, the not counterfactual history, the actual factual history of our, of our species. You know, the fact that I can walk a mile or two from my office and go down to the Pacific Ocean and scoop up a glass of, you know, the Pacific Ocean's finest microbes and plankton and floaters and, and maybe get a tiny little sand crab in there. And then also find in there, you know, oil, toxic waste, plastic debris, and, mm -hmm. you know, what we're doing to our own planet. Uh, it's not a large step to think we'd probably do the same to another planet in some time on Mars if Elon has his way uh, and, and elsewhere if perhaps we do make contact. And then sentient, you know, human beings have been murdered by the millions on Earth. And it's like, are we waiting to see something as amazing as a human being? would we treat them better than we treat treated the you know cambodians and and uh Tigays and 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 jews in the hall no I, I don't think there's any reason to suspect we'd be morally moved in any significant way that's not to diminish the importance of of trying to discover them uh, i'm just always cautious to make too much of the materialist conjecture that this will change everything. And this is, you know, aliens are what we've been waiting for. I think it's a form of wish fulfillment. Like it's going to somehow put into stark contrast the fragility of life, whereas we've known the factual history of humanity since its origin is towards bloodshed and <laughs> murder and, and atrocity. And so I'd rather focus on our moral, you know, kind of quandaries on earth and not look to microbes or little green men as our savior to give us meaning and purpose and take us away from our destructive past. Again, this is all said with extreme enthusiasm for the search for extraterrestrials, you know, putting my time where my mouth is by, you know, at least participating in conversations about this and, and hopefully advice to the scientific community. Excellent. Um, just got a couple more for you here. Um, a couple of weeks ago, you had uh, famous uh, cardiologist, scientist, author Eric Topol, Dr. Eric Topol, on the show, um, and you, uh, you know, referencing uh, Erwin Schrödinger's "What Is Life: The Physical Aspect of the Living Self" in 1944. Yes, asked, uh, asked Dr. Topol what life was. He gave you sort of a a fairly standard biologic definition. Um, I'm going to throw that one back at you as a physicist. Uh, what is life to you based on everything you've been studying uh, and, and what you've gleaned from your origins work? Um, got any yeah. thoughts on what it's all about? <laughs> yeah, I mean, life, uh, certainly some kind of a very complex emergent phenomenon that uh, that resists kind of purely simplistic, I would say simplistic materialism, to say, you know, is, is purely evolved, you know, from chemicals as, as Michio Kaku talks about in the God equation, you know, sort of even as a agnostic in his words, or even practicing uh, Presbyterian, I think, um, you know, he'll say, well, you know, we understand the origin of life because we understand, you know, it's, it's, you know, Darwinian evolution. And I, I think that's very glib and, and, you know, and I pointed the push back on my conversation with him because I don't, I don't think it's at all accepted. And I think, 
um, you know, on the other hand, you know, young earth creationism is anathema to me as well, but I'll talk to people like, like Eric Topol on one hand and Max Tegmark on the other hand, and the third hand I'll talk to Stephen C. Meyer, who is a, you know, who is a, um, you know, is a uh, design, intelligent design advocate. And uh, I can do that because I think that there is ambiguity in all things that are not properly defined. In other words, I can speak very accurately about the lifetime of the neutron and why that's important to the formation of the light elements on the periodic table. And then from there, we could talk about evolution in stars versus in the Big Bang. And then you can talk about formation of carbon and nitrogen, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think there are, you know, there are enough gaps and not to invoke, you know, the God of the gaps, but I think there are gaps that are filled in sometimes too glibly, you know, from pure scientists perspective, like Kaku does with, you know, Darwinian evolution and in upcoming book by Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying, who are coming on the show in a week or so, they talk about, uh, you know, basically that genes have a teleology, which I also think is, is overdoing it. Uh, I don't think there's any evidence of purpose manifestation in a gene or, or even in individual human being. Like I, I'm not thinking about, you know, I have children. I'm not thinking about, well, what were their 19th great grandchild be like, you know, no, it's not, <laughs> that's not what I, or why I want to do have kids so that I can spread my gene. No, that, that's ridiculous. Um, and so I think there is a little bit too much God of the gaps and science of the gaps. Mm -hmm. And so I find that to be indicative of an ill-defined problem. In other words, we don't know what life is uh, as, uh, you know, there are all these things. I'm sure you've read them, Ira, you know, what is it like to be a bat sure. answer? I don't know. I have no clue. <laughs> By the way, I'm going to write a book called uh, What's It Like to Be Thomas Nagel by author <laughs> A. Period Bat. Um, so, you know, these are all things, a hard problem of consciousness. They might not, you know, be amenable. Uh, and therefore, you start to see ludicrous proposals from people that are otherwise brilliant scientists like Dennett and, you know, and, and even, you know, friends that have been on the show that consciousness is an illusion. Donald Hoffman, you know, that reality doesn't exist because if reality doesn't exist, then you don't have to explain consciousness. Consciousness doesn't exist. Then you don't have to explain how did consciousness arise from non-conscious inorganic or organic matter. Um, so these are all ill-defined things. Um, I find them fascinating, delightful, delicious. They may not be part of the traditional quote scientific method that I railed against having a single definition, but nevertheless amenable in the time that I have to devote to them, they may not be as uh, crackable a nut as I like to work on. Uh, and yet that doesn't stop me from wildly speculating about them, but I just like to give equal amounts of grief, you know, as I do to scientists and non-scientists to, you know, proponents of that this is a soluble problem versus people that say it had to be God. Uh, so I, I find it, um, I find it vexing and provocative uh, uh, and not, uh, not maybe amenable to solution, uh, but nevertheless worthy of attention by serious intellectuals. Me too. Me too. Um, last, last one, just to, uh, and, and then I'll, uh, hear your kids coming home. So I'll, I'll, I'll let you go to them. Um, there is a handful of, uh, cosmologists out there, uh, that, uh, aside from thinking of the, the, uh, the multiverse, like you do, um, also spend a little time thinking about what the cosmos may itself be thinking about. Uh, folks like uh, Vitaly Ventura in the University of Minnesota who posits, you know, there's a lot of real unique complexity out there in all those galaxies and all those stars and all the fields that exist between them, looking a lot like neural networks and so forth. Um, 
provocative, interesting. Uh, give me a give me a couple of seconds while I have you about uh, once again the uh, the consciousness of the universe. Themes. Yeah, I think a lot is overdone about that. You know, you can have uh, you know these neural network maps and the number of stars in the universe, the same as the number of neurons. Uh, you know, uh, connections. Uh, the connectome is, is much, can be much bigger. Um, and therefore, you know, I say, well, you know, literally when you get a piece of cauliflower, it's like, it looks like a brain, you know, as fractal structure, maybe uh, self-similarity. Does that mean it's, you know, a cos hydrodynamical cosmic simulation? <laughs> no. Uh, so there is a lot. And that reflects back to what we talked about earlier, which is the desire for human beings to see patterns, inflections, and, and sort of nuance where there might not be any, it might be coincidence. Um, again, there's, you know, it's often said that, you know, the study of, uh, you know, comic books are not very scientific or worthy of intellectual pursuits or scholasticism, but the study of the history of comic books is. Mm -hmm. And so I think like studying where do these things come from is worthy of being, is, is worthy of scientific attention, but making too much of superficial things leads to a lot of woo-woo, you know, the universe is conscious and, and, you know, everything is conscious. And then there are people that take that seriously that will believe in what's called panpsychism, you know, that electrons have consciousness. And I think that's, you know, sort of ludicrous because no one behaves that way. Uh, I've only talked to like met one person so far that believes that like we have no free will, uh, but acts on it. You know, in other words, people will say things like free will is an illusion mm -hmm. and then they'll order, you know, pizza for lunch instead of sushi. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, and then you ask, well, why'd you do it? And they're not going to say, because of the big bang. You know, that's, I think it's ridiculous. <laughs> I did meet one person and I thought that he should seek psychological counseling, uh, <laughs> that he believes that he has no free will because I think there's a propensity for those people to be sociopaths. Uh, but, but anyway, uh, this is all, you know, delicious, delightful speculation, which I engage upon as well. And, uh, yeah, I just want to, uh, thank you for, for hosting me on the show. And I've been a fan and you're so dogged in, uh, in your pursuit and your great guests. Um, it was delightful uh, for me to make an appearance on the Triple P, Quadruple P. It, it, it was great. It was great having you, uh, Brian. Um, once again, for everybody that's going to be listening to this episode or watching on the YouTube channel, you've been listening to Dr. Brian Keating, Chancellor's Distinguished Professor of Physics, Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences, Department of Physics, University of California, San Diego. Pick up a copy of Losing the Nobel Prize. Uh, check out in a couple weeks Into the Impossible, Think Like a Nobel Prize winner, which will be available um, to all sources. And also, if you don't haven't subscribed, subscribe to the Into the Impossible podcast. Brian, thanks so much for taking the time out of your schedule to talk to us. Uh, thanks for everything that you've been doing, as we say on our show. Uh, thanks to helping create the better tomorrow for all of us. Do your work. Very, very impressive story. Ira is a delight. I really enjoyed it.